what we're talking about is a therapy ban <laughs> because therapy is questioning our perceptions. You know, why why have we come to these conclusions? Maybe there's something about your conclusion. You know, we, we understand you have these feelings and you don't ever question somebody's feelings. Feelings are what they are. But your interpretation of what that means can be way off. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist. And I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, my guest today is a parent in Washington State. We're doing this podcast as an audio only to protect the privacy of her family. Jennifer has been so gracious as to step up and share her personal story of what's happened in her family with her young daughter. I think her story is going to be really eye-opening for anyone who's interested in or just learning about uh, some of the gender issues that are happening with the, uh, the young folks today. So welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So where would you like me to start with, with my story? Um, right. So many of our listeners are parents like you and have heard stories like yours before. And many of them, I think, are new to this issue. Maybe they're parents of younger children and haven't encountered some of what's going on um, with kids. Well, really, I mean, starting at the age of 10 or even younger in some cases, like with your family. Um, but yeah. I think we have some parents of younger children in our audience, and we also have some open-minded folks who maybe aren't as familiar with what's happening with the gender crisis, but are starting to catch wind of it. So I think it'd be great for you to share your story from the beginning and also enlightening, enlighten our listeners along the way about some of the background of what's happening in the schools, what's happening in therapy and with the ideology on the internet to mm -hmm. help people catch up to what allowed for your situation to develop in the first place. Right. Okay. Um, okay. So I, I will start at the beginning. A lot of the stuff that I know now, I did not know when this hit our family. Um, and I think I was like most people out there. And I thought, um, as far as you know, transgender people, and I, I say that with, I have to quote that when I say that, because, um, Another thing I know now is that that that's a new term, transgender. Um, transsexual used to be what we called people who um, wanted to appear as the opposite sex. So when this hit, let's see, it started with my daughter. Again, I, I only know this now, but she we put her in an animation camp. And so a lot of this stuff these kids find on the internet. Um, and and I put her. We put her in an animation camp, and she met some friends who wanted her to get on an online drawing program. And she's really good at drawing. And so we were we were excited about that because 
Um, we thought it would be good for her, but but also really nervous about letting her do anything online. I, I was really nervous about it. So we allowed her to get on this online program. She was 10. She was young. But we were on there like as a friend with her because obviously we, we were worried about predators. We don't know who's online. Um, and And when we were on there, it looked like she was talking mostly to young girls. And they talked about having relationships together, which I thought was, you know, I thought it was a little bit silly because they were so young anyway, um, but not totally. It seemed actually kind of normal because girls' relationships, they kind of do really love each other and and they're very close. And so I can see them maybe even, I wasn't concerned if she did turn out to be gay, right? I wasn't really concerned about that, but I also thought she was just too young to know, and it was just kind of a girlish thing they were doing. Anyway, that's that's how it all started. So that was in fourth grade, and the next year, in fifth grade, at the beginning of the year, I, I got an email from her teacher uh, saying, and, and, and he used this made-up name, this new made-up name. I didn't I, I thought he had the wrong parent. I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, he's he's got the wrong parent. And then I went up to my daughter's room, and I saw this name written on her dresser. <laughs> and I was like, oh, do you have a new nickname, you know? So she, she, she said yes. I thought it was odd that the teacher didn't, you know, like, say anything about this or say that, you know, your daughter wants to be called this or whatever. He just used the name, and I was supposed to figure it out. That was kind of weird, um, but I never really said anything about it or thought that much about it at that point in time. So later, a little bit later in the year, uh, like December, uh, I got a call from my daughter's counselor, uh, from the school counselor, saying that she had mentioned, my daughter had mentioned that she was self-harming and suicidal. And... That was surprising to me. I hadn't seen anything that would indicate that she was suicidal, um, but I was concerned, of course. Um, and so the counselor uh, referred us to a special therapist that was contracted with the school. She told me that this was really great. She really sold this therapist to me. Um, she's free. You can do it during school. And she knows how to deal with these types of situations. And um, so I was like, okay, great. You know, I, at that time, I felt like, you know, the school was supporting me like they do. Like, you know, we're partners with the school. And later I, I realized that, that that really wasn't the case, that I wasn't, that they weren't treating me like a partner. But she, I, I gave permission for our daughter. First, when we sat down with her at the beginning, I said, you know, I know she is, questioning her sexuality a little bit. And uh, my husband and I, you know, we're going to love her no matter where she lands. But uh, we think she's really too young to know right now. The therapist was like, she just nodded. You know, she didn't really say anything about that. She didn't, like, a lot of my observations, <laughs> really, all of my observations that I gave her, I she never really responded to me. She just kind of nodded or said, mm-hmm, you know, I mean, I didn't notice it at the time. Now I look back and I'm like, well, that, you know, it, <laughs> that's interesting because 
what happened after that? So she saw my daughter for um, two and a half months. And, and then she called us, and this was right before the pandemic hit, but she called us, she called me, <laughs> and told me that um, our daughter wanted to be in the boys' cabin for uh, a fifth-grade camp. And that, uh, he, and she was using male pronouns and basically telling me that our daughter was a boy on this phone call. And she wanted to have a meeting in three days with us to help her present to us that she's a boy. So she was giving us time to process. <laughs> she was giving us three days to process the idea that our daughter wasn't a girl, which I, I don't even... I don't even know what to say about that. So can I, we pause at this point in the story? Because I feel like there's so much going on in this moment. There is so much going on. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, in in a version of your story that you wrote that I read, you said that the therapist had half hour sessions with your child and at this point had spent a cumulative about five hours. Yes. Um, may I ask about how old was this therapist or what stage in her career? Oh, that's a good question. Um, she's pretty young. She's, she's, I think she's mm-hmm. maybe in her late twenties. Um, and she has mm-hmm. a, she had a, a baby. Um, so she did mm-hmm. have a child, but she's, she was very young. That was part of, I think, why my daughter liked her. She was kind of young and hip and. Do you know if she was licensed yet or if she's still working on her internship hours? I believe she was a licensed social worker, which also got it. I didn't need I didn't even know that was her background, you know, when when we mm. engaged with her. I want to pause and just offer our audience a little bit of information for context that what therapists and social workers are being taught in school about gender is something that has been rapidly evolving over the past decade or so. So, you know, Someone who was in her late 20s a couple years ago was probably being taught much different things in grad school than I was in the early 2010s, um, which was around when this really started to shift anyway. So, So here you are. This young therapist has spent five hours with your daughter, and she's not asking you. She's telling you that your daughter is actually your son. What's going through your mind at this moment? I was pretty distressed <laughs> at this moment. And I started going over, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense because, like, she just had five girls stay the night with her for a sleepover. Why would she have a problem with sleeping in the girls' cabin at a camp? And, you know, I just started going over everything. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And and I, I I remember her having you know crushes on on boys and you know I just it just wasn't adding up for me um, and 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 really at that time I didn't completely understand what it meant to be transgender either because um, mm-hmm. that's another thing I think a lot of people are really confused about um, and I was at that time but it has nothing to do with sexual attraction um, at all in mm-hmm. fact. There are many, <laughs> this is one of the crazy things. So you'll find um, a couple, a young couple, and one of them will be what I would call a trans-identified male. So that's a male who 
believes they are a, a female, and one of them will be a trans-identified female. So that's a female who believes she's a male, and they will be a couple. So <laughs> it, it's so it's so bizarre. Um, it's like they're just having a normal relationship, you know, but they've switched roles. Or there will be like, um, they'll say, like a girl will, will who believes she's a boy. So she will say she's a gay boy because she still likes boys. Or what has happened, um, especially in the lesbian community, and, and one of the reasons the lesbians, and I've learned this, have were kind of the first hit by all of this and are very vocal about all of it, um, there were the trans-identified males who said they were lesbians. And, um, <laughs> and th- that if the lesbians did not want to date them, then that meant they were a bigot. So they're, it, it, it's so crazy. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like another f- form of conversion therapy, which that's a whole other thing that's going on with this. Um, we'll also. get to that part later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, of course, yeah. a lesbian is not attracted to somebody with a penis. I mean, that's. <laughs> yeah. If we um, have to get graphic to spell things out, we will. Yeah. But here you are at this moment where. You didn't know as much then as you know now about current language and conceptions around gender. And when it comes to sexuality, you'd be fine if your daughter discovers she's a lesbian, gay, bisexual, whatever. Exactly. It's just that in this moment in time, you've seen your daughter have crushes on boys Mm -hmm. and you've heard her talk about maybe being attracted to girls as she's figuring that out too. Mm -hmm. And all of that's fine, but she's 10. Right. And... And so when you're told that she's a boy, I mean, there's a, a whole conversation there around gender stereotypes and how people are conceptualizing what it means to be a boy or a girl. But I also am curious, prior to the age of 10 or prior to the onset of this entering your family, when your daughter was younger, what were her kind of, and I hate to stereotype, but what were her gendered interests or personality traits? And had she ever expressed discomfort with being a girl or having a girl's body? Okay, so that's interesting. So I would call her a tomboy, you know, what we used to call people who were gender mm-hmm. nonconforming, um, but mm-hmm. not, but but also um, heterosexual. So, or maybe you would call gay people a tomboy too. I don't know. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so I would have called her a tomboy. She liked rough and tumble play. Um, she did not like to wear dresses. In fact, it, it, and, and, and here's the other thing. She has two older brothers. Um, so she's always been trying to keep up with them. So she has also been surrounded by, you know, we had boys in the neighborhood. She really didn't have girls um, to play with when she was growing up. It was all She was surrounded by boys. So there's a few things going on. I think that that's, you know, she knows how to relate to boys better. And I think girl relationships are difficult for her. And so when she started to have those female relationships, there was a lot going on there. And and it was really hard for her to navigate, which I mm-hmm. understand because I, I think I was the same way. Um, mm-hmm. Female relationships when I was young were very difficult for me. I've learned to, you know, find the kind of people that I have the same, um, that I have things in common with now as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, as I, when I was young, I think I had really difficult female relationships. So, 
um, there was that. And, um, and I think she also didn't feel as valued as a girl. Uh, and Hmm. yeah, (laughs) I, I think she still, where was that coming from? Well, I mean, clearly it wasn't coming from you as a parent. No, it, it, but maybe I didn't emphasize enough how important she was. I don't, I don't know, you know, it's hard to know, Hmm. but, but I think it's because she was surrounded by boys and she did have, she did have instances where Mm -hmm. she wasn't taken as seriously. Now, part of that is because she's the Mm. third child. (laughs) So, Mm. you know, there's a lot, there's a lot playing into it Mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe she didn't. Wanting to be recognized, wanting to be important. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's also just things that, that we see in our culture that, that make, you know, that may make girls, I think they do make girls feel less important. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, Mm -hmm. there's that playing into it as well. And so from your perspective as a parent at this point in time, before the gender issue came up, you were somebody who didn't care what sexual orientation your child would grow up to have. But what you'd observed so far was that she seemed to have crushes on boys. And at some point she expressed interest in maybe having crushes on girls. And she was more of a tomboy. And some of that might have been her natural disposition and interests. Um, A lot of it you attribute to being mostly around boys and knowing how to play with boys and that feeling like a natural, familiar place to her. And none of that you had, you didn't have any problem with any of that. You weren't trying to push a gender role on your child or get her to be more interested in dresses or any of that. You just supported her daughter, your daughter being the way that she was. And you didn't see any problem with that until you started to think maybe, maybe she'd felt undervalued as female. Maybe she needed more female role models or more encouragement. And that only came up when you realized that she was expressing having a problem with her birth yes. sex. Yes, okay. and 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 that maybe she needed some more attention generally. You know, again, yeah. she's our third child, <laughs> and and maybe I got a little relaxed. Also, I was in the middle of some pretty intense therapy, dealing with some some childhood stuff that that I needed to deal with. So, so I wasn't as present. Um, you know, as I might have been. And so I think she was feeling, she was feeling lonely as well. So Mm -hmm. she, you know, that she kind of, I think she fell into um, watching TikTok and, you know, I let, she got in, we let her have too much time on the computer. (laughs) That's one of the Mm -hmm. big issues. I mean, many of the kids who get into this, that's where it starts, right? They're, they they kind of go down a rabbit hole and they watch, um, you know, influencers on YouTube and they get all the all this messaging that like, if you feel uncomfortable or you are questioning your gender at all, or if you think you're transgender, then you are, you know, I mean, that's just the answer. And, and, and they watch these things. And I mean, you know, I've heard, uh, people like Sasha Ayad talk about the symptom pool and, and when you have these symptoms out there in, in our culture, all of a sudden, uh, many people kind of start to manifest that, you know, this disorder or whatever it might be. And, uh, and I think that 
that has played a huge part in in what I would call now this this social contagion that we're dealing with 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 so many kids identifying as as transgender. Um, so a lot mm-hmm. of it, I think, has uh, happened from from just too much time on the computer, too much time on the internet, from loneliness and feeling disconnected, mm-hmm. disconnected from other people. You know, not really uh, being on the computer and their avatars. That's they're not being as much in their body. There's a lot of things that are playing into it. And then it's it's really kind of being um, pushed in our culture as almost kind of glamorized, actually. I mean, you know, with people like um, Ellen, previously known Ellen Page, now Elliot Page, being on the cover of Time for uh, coming out as transgender. And uh, cutting off her breath, having her breasts cut off and, and taking these drugs. And, and that glamorizes it. And many young girls are going to see that and think, oh, that's the answer for me. You know, this, this becomes, it's become kind of a panacea for a lot of kids who are having a lot of different issues. And some of them, it's just going through puberty, you know, which is hard. And mm-hmm. so they're like, yeah, I feel uncomfortable and different and weird. And that this is the reason why, you know, that's the answer they're being given. And and then they get a lot of attention for it. They often become more popular at school. I mean, I know of kids that were horribly bullied uh, and the school didn't seem to pay attention or do anything about it until they came out as transgender and then nobody could touch them. And they might even have like an assembly thrown for them for being so brave and Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, it's like the, the stereotype, the stunning and brave, but mm-hmm. yeah, they get a lot of attention. I mean, there's so much, <laughs> what kid who wasn't feeling outcast and different wouldn't do that, wouldn't go for that, you know? Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. and, and I think they are being really very, very confused that in the schools, they are teaching from kindergarten that, I mean, I've seen some of the books some, that, that some of the teachers are teaching in my district um, that say, when you're born, the doctors guess what sex you are. Well, you're going to tell a little kid that? I mean, the, and then there's teachers who are, you know, identify as transgender and they'll say things like, well, you know, I liked to play with trucks when I was a kid, and and I like short hair, and I don't like to wear dresses. And they're saying this to little kids, and these little kids think, mm-hmm. "Oh, huh, maybe I'm transgender too." You know, I mean, so, mm-hmm. oh boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's just <laughs> there's so much to say there. Yeah, but I realize we paused in the middle of your story at that moment that your daughter's therapist tells you. I'm going to give you three days to adjust to the fact that your daughter is actually your son. And then yes. your daughter is going to tell you, and you're supposed to support that. So yeah. you were starting to share what was going through your mind in that moment. Can you tell us more about what you were thinking and feeling? Well, okay. If I go back to that moment in time, I was concerned um, because, interestingly, because I think my first um, thought was, like, if I think of uh, gay couples or, or gay people, I know plenty of them that seem happy and, you know, they they have fulfilling lives or, and they, they, have, they find partners. Um, but I, I don't, I haven't seen evidence of that for people who 
identify as transgender. And in fact, um, I've seen people who did that and really were not doing well. So it it's it's wasn't I wasn't super excited about the idea because I didn't I didn't see it leading to happiness for my daughter. So again, like it didn't matter to me what she identified as. We, there's nothing that's going to make uh, us as parents not love her um, and care about her. But but I was it was concerning, and it didn't make sense to me. Um, like I said, so I, I I still didn't like know exactly what I thought. But my husband, um, when I told him about the conversation, was he was. Uh, he kind of went through the roof. Um, he was not happy that the therapist was using male pronouns. Um, and he, the thing was that he happened to know somebody who had been through this before us. And, and they moved out of our state because, because of the laws in our state allow a child at 13 to, um, you know, be, you, they, they'll, there are people in our area who will emancipate a child and help them go get the drugs and the surgeries. So that's the most concerning part of all of this is the medicalization part. Um, and that's, that's the part that, uh, you know, beyond being concerned about it, would she really be happy this way, um, that, that's the terrifying part. Because what if, you know, what if it's a mistake? This is, we're talking about doing permanent stuff to your body, um, my daughter wasn't ever thinking about any of this stuff, um, but but that's where it all seems to lead. I don't, you know, unless somebody— She wasn't thinking about wanting testosterone or a mastectomy. No, that hadn't entered her thinking, and it, it really never did. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also was prepubescent. She hadn't had a period or right. started to develop her curves, I'm guessing— at the age of ten, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, she. I mean, she might have just been barely starting. I mean, our puberty hits early now. I don't know why. <laughs> Hormones in in our milk, or I don't know what it is, but but puberty yeah. does seem to be endocrine hitting disrupting early. chemicals in the environment, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so she was kind of starting to at that point. So what happened was, um, you know, I talked to my husband. He knew more about what was happening with all of this than I did, and he was freaked out. I actually thought he was kind of losing it at first. I thought he was a bit crazy. <laughs> I'm like, you know, well, nobody can make her anything, and and this, you know, they're not trying to take her away from us and and all that. Um, but he made me just kind of he made me not, or he told me not to say anything more to this therapist. Like, don't say anything to the school. Don't say anything to the therapist. And I respected his wishes. You know, I was like, okay, okay. You know, I I didn't like, um, you know, the conversation that I had with this therapist after all of this. I, I was, we, we, we decided not to have the meeting because that was just going to set us up for discord between our daughter and us because we weren't on board with this. You know, we... <laughs> So that that's not that just didn't sound like a good idea to me, and I, I really don't understand why the therapist thought it was a good idea. Um, I think it was pretty negligent on her part, but because uh, she just hit us with this, <laughs> so we 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 canceled that meeting, and uh, it was right before the pandemic. I actually 
and did the therapy with this with this therapist. I was like, you know, we're we're not going to do this anymore. And actually, the other thing was that I had my therapist that I was seeing, who was older, and I ran all this stuff past her, uh, you know, that what my daughter was going through and what she was thinking. And she's like, you know, it's a trend. She's too young to know that. And I was like, that's what I thought. <laughs> you know, she like validated what what, what I was feeling. Um, and, uh, so that, that was helpful. And, and then this therapist, um, was also a resource for us with our daughter and our daughter, we, we did some therapy together with her, which was actually good because there were, um, some family dynamics that needed to be addressed, but she treated us as a family, um, you know, not as, uh, <laughs> not as unsupportive parents or the, you know, potential mm-hmm. enemy of our child. She treated us all together. And, and that's, by and large, I don't see that happening. You know, there are a few this therapists really here and there. This is really important. I want to I talk about this phase in your journey because I think a lot of families are having a hard time finding a therapist with those skills and that approach. They are. Um, I do agree it's a family issue. And in the absence of a supportive approach that's really grounded in family systems theory and attachment theory, this this kind of new generation of ideology that's being taught has the effect of triangulating uh, children and families and driving a wedge between children and their parents before children are actually mature enough to really not need their parents anymore. And that's disastrous for mental health. It's disastrous for families. And it's playing right into some things that we know don't work. Um, it's triangulation. It's the drama triangle. This is this is a well-researched phenomenon. Um, so I'm really glad that you were one of the, the families that was fortunate enough to, I mean, you already had a good relationship with this person as an individual therapist, and they agreed to bring in your husband and daughter because that was what was needed here. And um, I'm really curious how that therapist approached the issue that was helpful for you. Can you share about that? Okay, so that's interesting. I, I think I, ha- I do have to talk about the conversion therapy ban at this point because okay, she was Let's go there because yeah, because in our state, and we are one of like maybe 20, 20 something, I can't remember how many states are have this now, but it's the conversion therapy ban, which most people think of, and I would have thought of as, you know, gay conversion therapy, shock therapy, you know, praying the gay away, all these horrible things, right, that, that most of us understand are not good, but that's not what we're talking about. What, what we're talking about is um, if a child comes to anyone and says they are transgender, that you are not allowed to question that. If you question that or question why they feel that way, that's conversion therapy. So what effectively it is, is a therapy ban. <laughs> because therapy, yeah. from my understanding, is, is questioning our perceptions. You know, why, why have we come to these conclusions? Maybe there's something about your conclusion. You know, we, we understand you have these feelings and you don't ever question somebody's feelings. Feelings are what they are. But your interpretation of what that means can be way off. hundred <laughs> um, percent. And we can really talk ourselves into these things too. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 effectively a, a therapy ban for kids, and and yeah. which is antithetical to what most people 
believe is happening with these kids who identify as transgender. They think that they're getting Mm -hmm. all this therapy, but really what they're getting is um, what's called affirmation. (laughs) So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not what I would call therapy at all. It's it's just yeah. um, support supporting the idea that that's who you are. Um, mm-hmm. And here's the other thing, and this is what happened with this therapist, um, making it sound terrible if anybody ever misgenders you. So, yeah. you know, if, if any, <laughs> it becomes a thing that, that, I mean, I saw this girl online yesterday talking about being misgendered, and she was bawling. And I'm thinking, really? This is the worst thing that could happen to you? That somebody calls you what you think is the wrong pronoun? You know, I mean, there are so much, so many mm-hmm. other things that are real problems. <laughs> um, I want to pause here and talk about what you're saying and share that from the therapist's yeah. perspective, because I think mm-hmm. this is so important to explore. Um the affirmation, that's not normally what we do. That's collusion, right? We we seek to establish rapport with our clients and make sure that they feel that unconditional positive regard from us and that they have our attention and our compassion. But that doesn't mean we always agree, like you say, with their narrative, with their interpretation of that feeling and, and what it means. So it's never been our job to just affirm anything that someone says, right? And I I personally don't appreciate having my job redefined for me. There's a whole nother conversation there. Um, But what I want to add too is um, when talking about the conversion therapy ban, I think it's really important for people to understand the difference between the original definition of conversion therapy, which was attempts at changing someone's sexual orientation and how conversion therapy has been redefined to include questioning someone's gender identity. There's a couple things I want to point out about that. So one is that sexual orientation is pretty innate, pretty stable across the lifespan. And this is across cultures and across time periods. The distribution of about how, you know, what percent of the population is gay, what percent of the population is bisexual, and what percent of the population is heterosexual is pretty consistent. So we know that this is natural, right? And how that expresses itself in different cultures is going to vary. If you're in a homophobic culture, then you're going to go underground with it or repress it, but you're still fundamentally homo, hetero, or bisexual. Most people, that doesn't change. Um, Although, you know, there's plenty of bisexual people who, you know, have an opposite sex marriage and then leave it and then find someone of the same sex and you know, maybe they shift from identifying as hetero to homo, but usually those folks are somewhere in the middle. Um, and most people are pretty stable across the lifespan. And it's not something that can ever see an exponential increase in the population. You would never see, you know, homosexuality going from one to five to 10 to 20% of the population because on a gut level, most of us know who we're attracted to and who we're not. So the gender issue is completely different because it's not about who are you sexually or romantically attracted to and who are you not. It's a very subjective mental idea about who you are and how to interpret your feelings about your body and your feelings about life and however it is that you're defining this stuff. So it is something that can exponentially increase. You would never see homosexuality exponentially increase. 
you will see, and we are seeing an exponential increase in transgender identification because it is not innate, because it has no basis in biology or nature. It is something that is socially constructed. And I think it's quite ironic that the story that gender is a social construct is coming from the very people who are socially constructing these narratives. They're making up stories, right, Mm -hmm. of what it means, what is transgender or non-binary, and what is it to identify as that. So I think a lot of folks who have made uh, what I would consider mistakes along this path have seen trans as similar to being gay, right? And what they don't realize, oh, this is the other thing I'll say about conversion therapy. One of the reasons that conversion therapy in its traditional sense of efforts to change someone's sexual orientation is damaging and unnecessary is that there's nothing wrong with being gay. Being gay is not a hazard to your health. Uh, Are there certain health risks associated with being? Yes, you have a slightly increased risk of HIV if you're not careful. And there are certain, you know, things that gay people might do in bed that are maybe a little physiologically more risky, Um, but they could take appropriate precautions and look out for their health if they are engaging in any risky activity. Otherwise, the only danger in being gay is if you live in a homophobic society. So that is an issue that needs to be addressed at a society level, not at the level of trying to change an individual. So if someone, you know, was struggling with their sexuality, then a better alternative to conversion therapy would be therapy to help them work through their internalized homophobia and become more comfortable with themselves, right? Whereas there are absolutely health risks associated with identifying as transgender especially if that leads down a path of medicalization, which it usually does. Um, Taking cross-sex hormones and having these surgeries come with high risk of health complications. And you almost certainly will encounter, you know, for females taking testosterone, for example, vaginal atrophy, painful urination, needing a hysterectomy, right? We know that cross-sex hormones are basically poison to the body and have a damaging effect on the brain. Cross-sex hormones increase the risk of Alzheimer's, dementia, schizophrenia, depression. Long-term, they increase the the risk of suicidality by a lot. So the myth that these hormones and surgeries decrease suicidality is a very dangerous myth. Um, You know, increasing the risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, you name it. Cross-sex hormones are a really powerful medical intervention that is damaging to the body, no matter what a person wants to believe. The doses of testosterone that women are taking do not belong in the female body. And we all know that as women from our personal experience of having menstrual cycles, having gone through pregnancy or taken hormones for birth control or going through menopause, all of these different events that we go through as women really humble us to the power of our hormones So I think for most women, it is intuitive to understand that hormones are very powerful. And similarly, men, they don't go through the same things, but men understand that, you know, the surge of testosterone that they went through in adolescence was frightening and how much it amplified their sex drive and, you know, the unwanted erections and and how distracting uh, having that increased sex drive from testosterone can be. So I think we all on some level know how powerful hormones are. And I simply mean to validate that inner knowing for people who need it. But yes, hormones are powerful. Cross-sex hormones are really damaging in bodies that they 
they don't belong in. Um, mm-hmm. So these medical interventions, and that's not even talking about surgeries. Uh, we could talk about surgeries another time or later today, but these are really powerful medical interventions that do not have good long-term data or outcomes from everything we know. And so, you know, when looking at the idea of conversion therapy, there's nothing wrong with being gay. There's no health risks. It's not preferable to be straight than it is to be gay unless you have a bias. Whereas it is 100% preferable to be, as they would say, cisgender. It is 100% preferable to not feel the need to medically alter your body with these powerful hormones and surgeries. If you use hormones and surgeries, you are damaging your body and you are uh, creating long-term complications for your health and becoming permanently dependent on the medical system, not only for the hormones that you're taking, but for the medical help you will need down the line when you see the risks of those hormones. So my problem here with the conversion therapy redefinition and ban is that we're required to act as though it's not preferable to be okay with your body and that it's just as good to not be okay with your body and to want and supposedly need, quote unquote, uh, things that come with uh, long-term health consequences that are really pretty damaging. So I would say as a therapist and as a human being with a head on my shoulders, it is 100% preferable to not be transgender. Yes, I will say that, right? You could call me transphobic. You can call me whatever you want. It is 100% preferable and it is uh, it is not innate, right? A person's gender identity is a social construct, is not innate. So as a therapist, if we had the choice between in a, pers- in a situation where someone's gay, uh, trying, like, let's say there was no conversion therapy ban. If if your choice was to try to force someone who's gay to not be gay or to help them become comfortable with their homosexuality, absolutely, you should help them become comfortable with their homosexuality because that's who they are and there's nothing wrong with it except their own thoughts and feelings about it and maybe how they're being treated by other people depending on their social context. But if a person identifies as transgender... Uh, we should absolutely do everything in our power to help them become comfortable again with who they are. Just like you would want a, a gay person to be comfortable with who they are, right? A girl should be comfortable with being a girl who's growing into a woman and a boy should be comfortable with being a boy who's growing into a man because that's reality. That's the body that you have. It's who you are. And maybe you have some internalized homophobia or internalized misogyny or gender roles or narratives that are influencing your sense of being okay with that. But it's much, much, much preferable for your mental health and your physical health to be okay with who you are and the body that you have. And if we can help you with that as a therapist, that's what we should do. We should not tell you that it's good to hate your body. It's good to want your body to change. And it's good or just as good as anything else to seek these medical interventions. So that is one major reason that I see this conversion therapy redefinition as so disastrous. And I just wanted to add that while we're on that topic before we resume your story, because what you're saying about the conversion therapy ban is so, so important for people to understand. It is. And thank you for saying all of that. That was, that was great. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that, that, that limits then therapists in, in states that have the ban 
they can't question or they can lose their license. So it's pretty serious. And, and, and here's another consequence of that. There are good therapists who won't even touch patients who say they're transgender because they don't even want to deal with that. It's like they're afraid they're going to, they, ethically, it doesn't feel right to them either, right? Like they, they feel like they can't do their job Um, or they just Mm -hmm. feel like they're not um, trained in that. So they won't, they won't um, take on clients who identify as such and they'll send them to the ones who do identify as transgender therapists. And that's, that's just a, that they're, then they're going to be affirmed, and that is a mm-hmm. one-way path towards medicalization. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's and scary as a parent. I am one of those therapists where I had to make a decision. Once I stepped into the public light and the trans rights activists started coming after me and after my career, I said I need to not work with adolescents unless it's in the context of family therapy for their parents. And really, I want to focus on helping parents because I'm in a state, uh, Oregon, where we do have the ban on the redefined conversion therapy. And I, too, if I took on a client that was young and they said they were trans and I said, well, what do you mean? What does it mean to be a boy? And, oh, so you hate your body. Let's explore that. You know, if I were to go there, I'd be putting my license on the line. And I think this is absolutely tragic. This conversion therapy redefinition ban is preventing a lot of good therapists from being able to help young people who are struggling with something that is socially influenced that is making them hate their bodies and want to alter their bodies in damaging ways. So you're absolutely right. This is a crisis and it needs to change soon. It's a huge crisis. Um, So the therapist then, she just really didn't talk about any of that because honestly, that wasn't the real issue right? The the identification wasn't the real issue. We had other issues that needed to be addressed. Um, So that's what she addressed. And and it was very helpful. And, uh, um, you know... (laughs) So there, there was that we had we we had the benefit of having that therapist. Really, really, we were very lucky. We were so much luckier than a lot of other families that that have this happen, um, because we had some warning because our daughter was very young, and um, we still had a lot more influence. I know so many parents whose children go off to college at eighteen, and you know you remember how you were at eighteen. We're not really quite ready to take on the world yet um, and make really all of the important decisions and, and especially ones that are so life-changing and so a lot of these kids oh no they go they went off to college and um, did medical things to themselves um, and their parents really didn't even know um, kind of at the beginning of this um, what I call contagion those the parents were totally taken by surprise and then there these Children are also at the same time told that if their parents don't go for it 100%, that means their parents don't care for or love them, which is the opposite of what is true, actually. These parents, all the ones that I know, and I know thousands of parents going through this, and and those are only the ones who have found the support groups that I'm involved in. I think there's many, many more out there who don't, who feel like they're alone um, because they feel like because the, our greater culture is telling them that they have to affirm this or they're, you know, they have to deal with their own bigotry, right? Um, it's your problem, parent, if you 
are concerned about this. You keep it to yourself and you affirm your child. So that's what they hear. That's what a lot of them hear. They end up in these affirming support groups, which are huge. <laughs> and they, um, if they put any questions out there about it, if they're concerned, like, I'm not sure that my child is, oh, they, they will get attacked absolutely horrendously piled on. Um, so, the, uh, okay, so there is this one um, group, the support group that it's actually, they don't like to call it a support group. It's, it's a group for questioning. Um, uh, and it's called Concerned Parents of Transgender Non-Binary Kids, Teens, and Young Adults. And it's on Facebook. Um, and it has grown from, uh, in a year, it has 2,000 members, and it seems to be growing exponentially. So they're getting like 15 to 25 new requests a day. And these parents arrive in this group, and they're, they're scared to say anything. They, they watch for a little bit, and then they realize that, that you can actually ask questions in this group. And not actually, anybody who attacks um, gets reprimanded. <laughs> so there is no—that's not allowed. Um, so they, you know, they're like, it's like a, they can breathe again. They're, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I found this group. Uh, I, I felt like there was something wrong and, and I didn't feel like I could ask. And, you know, I got attacked in this other group. And um, anyway, my point is, who knows how many parents are out there that, that don't have any support, right? And, and feel totally isolated. I think there's a lot. I think there are a lot. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Where was I in my story, though? I need to get back to what happened. Um, so, well, so you were talking about family therapy, and I wanted to comment because you said that the therapists didn't really talk about gender. They talked about the real issues in your family, and I want to say that that is so important. That's our job as therapists, right? Just because someone says that something's important to them doesn't mean that that's the whole story. In this case, you talked about how for your daughter, um, identifying as transgender might have been a cry for attention. And that you said you had been absorbed in your own inner work of working on your trauma and she had two older brothers. Maybe she was feeling a little neglected. That doesn't mean you're a neglectful parent, but sometimes kids do things to get your attention as a parent saying, mom, dad, I need your time and energy and focus. And there was some other stuff and you don't have to share your personal details, but you're saying that the therapist actually helped get to the root of the problem. Of course, a 10-year-old doesn't know how to get to the root of the problem. If they're being told all of your distress is attributable to X, Y, Z, they're going to, that's going to be their narrative. That's going to be their language for their feeling. But this therapist did her job as someone older, wiser, and trained to do it of examining what was actually happening in the family. And you found that helpful. Yes, it was a lifesaver. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, we we had that. We had um, my husband's friends who had been through this, who introduced me to many of these support groups I was talking about, um, and a lot of resources. Um, so I learned a lot from other parents who had been through this before us. Um, really, so what happens a lot with with mothers in this situation, and for whatever reason, it, there are some fathers that are involved. But it's mostly mothers who are they they go into uh, like intensive research mode. Like, what is all of this? What does it mean? What is the medicalization? Um, you know, they we get like we we joke about it. It's like we get our PhD in this in gender, <laughs> um, and uh, so that that is what I did at this point in time. Um, I, I dove into all the research and tried to figure out what was going on. Um, meanwhile, my daughter had a falling out with her group of friends at school that that were kind of the LGBTQ group, and um, and she threatened suicide again, and that was a, a manipulative tactic at that point. And I knew that, even though you know we we had this discussion about you. you if you say that, like, I may have to take you to the hospital and all this, you know, we were, not that I wasn't concerned, but I also did know that it was manipulation. Um, anyway, I I didn't, I, at that point, I took all of her devices away. So I took all the devices away. She had this falling out with her group. We also took her out of school. So she's been homeschooling since. And um, she slowly, she really actually, her mood changed pretty quickly. Um, I think, uh, especially because we took her devices away and she was out and she was being physical again, our neighbors noticed a difference, you know, they were like, wow, she's so happy now because guess what? She, she was not happy before that when she was in the middle of this identification that, that she wasn't flourishing, (laughs) you know, she got, um, she did get some attention for sure. Uh, you know, I noticed kids saying hi to her and that didn't before. Um, and she definitely got more attention from people in, in the administration at the school. Um, but she didn't seem happy. So anyway, that th- things started to get better. It took a Can while. Can I pause you to ask, was this, I think you said it was right at the beginning of the pandemic mm-hmm. that you decided to homeschool because she was already starting to do online school because it was early pandemic. And did you say that it it was easier to homeschool her because everyone was online anyway? So you weren't like taking her out of class? Yes, absolutely. That was, that was, that was so great (laughs) that it worked out that way. Again, another thing we were super lucky with. Um, But, but actually we took her out before they told us to take our kids out of school. Because I was like, okay, the pandemic hit. It, it took it took our district especially a little while to say, um, you know, we're not going to school anymore. And I was like, let's just take her out now. You know, we'll just say it's because of the pandemic. So we actually took her out before they told us we had to. And she was fine What was with this, that. like February 2020 then? Yeah. Yep. February. Um, and, and then at that point, I asked this therapist for the notes from the sessions 
Um, and I had asked also uh, several times throughout them seeing each other what they were discussing because I wanted to know. You asked course, the school the therapist. Thera- mm-hmm. The therapist that, that she saw at the school, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never really told me. She, she'd just say, well, you know, how are things going at home? <laughs> and um, so that, I didn't, I just figured that they didn't talk about that much at that point or there, there wasn't anything major that came up. So after all of this happened, I asked, you know, I ended the therapy with this therapist. I asked her for the notes from their sessions, which I have a right to, a legal right to in our state um, because she was under 13. Now at 13, I wouldn't have had a right to this information. Um, but, uh, so I asked for it and it took her three months to give me the notes. Uh, she told me she forgot. Um, and I, I, I had to ask her a few times and I finally got them. And when I got them, oh, I, I, I almost can hardly still hardly even talk about it. It makes me so upset because I saw what they were talking about. And I saw that from the very first session, she sat down with our child she was using male pronouns and and the the new name and never never said a word to me about that and i asked what was going on like this would be a thing that she would say you know i, I would ethically she should have said to us so you know she took a she was treating our child without running it past us which i i believe is illegal cuz she was under 13 um, yeah, and we wanted to take legal action, but we, we spoke to somebody, we spoke, we, we consulted a lawyer who actually didn't, this would have been medical malpractice. Um, and, uh, he didn't deal with that, but he was trying to help us find someone and he really couldn't find anybody that could help us. And it didn't seem, he was having a very hard time. We're also in a very liberal state with very liberal judges um, and lawyers. Uh, it just didn't. It didn't seem like it was going to be a successful thing for us. And I was a little bit nervous, and and maybe this was misplaced, but I was nervous that somehow that was going to allow the government into our home, um, you know, and to have some uh, to to maybe be able to take our child from us. So I, you know, we we kind of we freaked out. We we dropped that. Um, and we focused on our daughter. We focused on um, really spending a lot of time with her. Doing we we traveled during you know during the whole pandemic. We got a camper and we we traveled with the family. We spent a lot of time outside. Um, and uh, I mean, she slowly over time. She I think that identification just didn't really wasn't doing anything for her anymore. Um, because it really was only a thing that was happening at the school. At home, did you keep using her name and pronoun, her name and she, her? Yeah. So you never, you never affirmed? No, we didn't. And, and her brothers to this day don't even know what happened, actually. So it really was only a thing (laughs) that was happening at the school. And, and her, um, her grandparents didn't know about it either. And they live right by us. So yeah, no, it wasn't, it was a, it was a thing. It was an identity that worked for her, I think, at the school. Mm-hmm. We got her out. We got her off her devices. I, um, I consulted with Sasha Ayad, who was, was very, 
you know, I talked to her and I talked to some other people that were so helpful. Um, and uh, she kind of, she directed me away from like, like hitting it head on. I did do some questioning at first, like, well, why do you think you are, you know, and, and it was, there was some defensiveness. Um, so, you know, after talking to Sasha, she, she kind of said, you know, don't, maybe don't hit it right head on because then there will be um, pushback, right? I mean, so I was more careful. I really didn't um, talk about that uh, with her. I talked about other things like, I talked about the opioid crisis. I was like, you know, you can't always trust doctors. Doctors, you know, I'm sure they thought they were helping people in the opioid crisis, but they had... uh, they had some incentive to be doing that. You know, they were getting uh, perks and they were getting, um, I don't know, money. And uh, they, my point is that that adults can make mistakes, you know, so I, I kind of, I've entered into that with her. And I talked about lots of other social phenomenon, you know, like the, um, I talked about cults. We watched some stuff. Uh, oh, what is the cult in California right now? It's, it's, Scientology, Scientology. We talked about Scientology. We watched some videos. So I, I talked about all these topics that um, that were kind of similar to things that I see happening it, with this transgender phenomenon. And uh, she she slowly kind of she made the connections herself. She she would say, "Oh, that's like that's just like being in a cult," you know. Like I started talking about the trans, some of the um, detransitioners. And I said, you know, there's people who thought they were so sure that that this is what they were, and and when they decided they were, they they really got a, a lot of um, love and attention for it, and um, and then they grew up and they matured, and they realized that it that that was wrong, that there, that was a mistake, and, but they had already done all these. Um, medical things to themselves that that are going to affect them now for the rest of their life. And also, they were rejected by all those people who loved them so much. All of a sudden, now they're, they were bad people. Um, and she said, well, that's just like a cult. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, it is. So there were things like that going on. We had discussions like that um, slowly over time. And really, it, it just, it took... It, it was a very slow, careful process of of having these discussions and not, um, you know, waiting for the right moment. Um, there, there was one moment when I kind of had a, a breakdown on her, and it's funny. I have a, a couple other friends who who had a similar thing happen, um, where I just like one of her friends was using male pronouns after she had already said she wasn't interested in that anymore. And I was like, oh, are you just, you know, trying to say that to make me feel better? Or, you know, like, <laughs> what's going on? You know, and and she didn't want to talk about it. And I kind of lost it. And um, I was uncontrollably sobbing. I Like, I actually, I left, I, you know, was like, well, that's just crap, you know? And I, I walked out of the room and, and I couldn't stop crying because I was scared um, for her. And I, I, 
she came down, she came into the room where I was and I was uncontrollably sobbing and and she's like, I'm sorry, mama. And I was like, you know, I'm sorry too. I'm sorry I got upset with you. I'm just really scared for you. I don't understand why all these girls are don't want to be girls. And I think there are people out there who want to take advantage of you. And um yeah, I just like the whole time I'm sobbing, like I can't stop sobbing. I start talking about all these, you know, like historical situations where where children were, were pitted against their parents, like, you know, in Nazi Germany or um in China. And um, you know, I just I kind of like went off on all these like historical things that seemed relevant to what was happening right now. And um all the while just totally bawling. And my daughter started crying with me and and she hugged me and she said, it's okay, mama, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> oh, God, I still couldn't stop crying. But I think that was a really a watershed moment for both of us um, that, that she saw, she saw how deeply concerned I was about this. And it, it's kind of snapped her into reality, I think. Um, and she also saw how much I loved her, you know? And and I think it brought us closer. Yeah, that that was kind of a that was a big moment. It's so heartening to hear that you were able to restore your relationship with her through being honest and vulnerable. It sounds like this was a real chapter of growing up in her life where mm-hmm. this kind of cry for help necessitated some changes in your family. And gave her the opportunity to really learn from you, not just learn from her teachers, but learn from you about history and sociology and and the psychology of groups and your own personal feelings. And um, that's part of growing up, right, to go from seeing your parents as these all-powerful deities to these complex human beings and of course, it's not healthy for a parent to over-rely on their child for emotional support, but that's not what you were doing. You were letting her see her mother and her mother's love for her and really where your concerns were coming from. And it sounds like that was really eye-opening for her. And you helped her come to her own conclusions. You treated her with respect for her developing intelligence, and you taught her about these things in such a way that she was able to have her own light bulb moments of, wow, that's really cultish. And she was able to see her for herself that, of course, my mom loves me more than anyone on the internet or any friend my age who's going through their own identity confusion. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, there was another discussion that we had too about, um, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm your mother. We are your parents. We love you more than anybody on this planet. And anybody who tells you otherwise is somebody you shouldn't trust because they are not looking out for your best interests. There's nobody who is looking out for your best interests as much as we are. Um, and when I said that to her, she knew it was true. You know, when you say that to your child, they know it's true. I mean, we're parents aren't perfect. We make mistakes, but but we we know and love our children best by and large that's that's a truth generally you know that's a general universal truth now there are exceptions but but those are exceptions and 
the the unfortunate thing that I see happening is that all of us who question this are being treated as if we are the enemy of our children um, or we're unsupportive and unloving parents, which is the opposite of what is true. The fact that we're questioning it actually is proof that we are very loving parents. And, and they're teaching our children that, that we aren't. And they're taking away, like you said earlier, when they do that, they're taking away they, our, killed, our children's best uh, support, which is us. <laughs> um, these people who are affirming them, they're not going to take care of them for the rest of their lives. They're not going to help them when they go through um, detransitioning, you know, and then have to go back and deal with whatever the original issues were that they had that got them into it in the first place and have all these health consequences. Who's going to be there for them? Not these people who are, you know, cheering them on when they get into it. They're not going to be there anymore. The doctors aren't going to be there for them. (sighs) Yeah, it's... I don't like to I don't like to talk to about parents as if we are the biggest victims because the children are the biggest victims in this whole situation. The the detransitioners are the biggest victims. Um, but as a parent, there's nothing worse than watching your child become a victim of something. I mean, that's the <laughs> it's like ripping your heart out. It's um and these I j- I just know so many heartbroken parents that are watching their children in the middle of this. And it's uh, it's like torture, and they're being treated like they're the you know bad people. <laughs> so destructive. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much is getting projected onto parents. When I think about all the adults who are fueling this, I wonder how many have their own anger toward their own parents for whatever was wrong with their childhoods that is getting misplaced and projected onto other parents, sort of assuming other parents are abusive, bigoted, hateful, neglectful. All these stories about parents, they're coming from somewhere else. Either they're coming from ulterior motives or they're coming from ignorance and projection. Mm -hmm. There's the savior complex. Yeah, absolutely, which is one reason that it's so important for us to be aware of that drama triangle. And maybe this is the time in the story to revisit it. So for those who aren't familiar Um, The Karpman drama triangle consists of the victim, rescuer, and perpetrator. Um, So in any situation where there's drama, people usually get triangulated into these roles. And uh, some people with dysfunctional personalities spend their whole lifetime seeing themselves in one of these roles, right? So antisocial personality disorder, you know, someone who becomes criminal and sociopathic is a perpetual perpetrator. And someone with, let's say, borderline personality disorder um, might see themselves as a victim for their whole life. And uh, and I think that that one kind of flaw that we therapists need to look at in ourselves is our propensity to identify with the rescuer role. And oftentimes that has come from our own history of victimization. Many of us have our own trauma. We're well known for that, right? There's kind of the myth of the the therapist who has their own problems. And it's true, but that doesn't mean we can't be great wounded healers. But we do have to watch out for, like you say, that savior complex, that impulse in us to rescue someone else because we ourselves needed to be rescued at some point, or because we get some ego gratification out of feeling that we're helpful in that way. And I'm not going to say that that doesn't play a role in my own career, 
But I also think that we really need to be wary of enmeshment and colluding with our clients. We really need to be wary of reinforcing stories of victimization and looking at what people are getting out of those stories. Now, it doesn't mean bad things don't happen to people. There's definitely a point in the healing process where it's really important to identify with your victimization in the sense of, wow, what happened to me was really wrong and there was nothing I could have done to stop it and it wasn't my fault and I did the best I could and that person is a perpetrator and it wasn't my fault and I really was helpless. That's an important phase in the healing process for many people. The problem is when you get stuck in the role of identifying as a helpless victim and you lose touch with your own agency or you get secondary gain out of being a victim. So, you know, if I remain in the victim role or I, you know, consider my identity to be an oppressed or marginalized identity and that's how I get my social connection, then my whole world is built on that. And the love and support I feel from other people is built on that. So how am I going to give that up, right? And then if you develop your whole sense of identity based on being a victim, well, you develop a personality disorder because nobody can live that way. You have to have agency to really become a full, mature adult human. So I do think that therapists, as much as anyone else, and sometimes more, are vulnerable to falling prey to the drama triangle and having our own role in it. And it's not that there aren't victims, rescuers, and perpetrators, but it's that those are temporary roles. Those are relational roles in the sense that, yes, I was a victim of a particular person. I was a victim and so-and-so was a perpetrator in this situation. And and for me, it's multiple. You know, I've been a victim of multiple people, multiple perpetrators. Uh, that happens, right? And I've probably been a perpetrator and I've definitely done a lot of rescuing. Um, but those are roles they're not permanent positions. And so it's important to identify, yes, in this situation, I was in that role, but that's not who I am. And that's not how I have to continue interacting with other people. So I think this is a danger that a lot of therapists pose and really need to examine ourselves. Am I viewing myself as a savior? Where's that coming from? What are my own you know, maybe wounds or historical stories that might be contributing to a sense of needing to identify that way or of seeing my client in the particular way in which I'm seeing them. And what would mm -hmm. happen if I stepped out of that role, right? Because oftentimes it's it's reinforcing the triangle that keeps it going. So if I have a client, let's say, who's really identified with being a victim and I I'm unaware of what I'm doing and I let my savior complex get the best of me and I act that out with them, then I'm nurturing, I'm coddling, I'm treating them as if they're helpless and they're learning to further become emotionally dependent on being treated that way and getting their sense of value out of that, right? And then they're going to cling on to me as their therapist or they're going to look for other people to coddle them too. And they're not going to find their own agency to help them heal. So we really have to be careful about cultivating people's dependency on us and kind of looking at what are the fruits of our labor as therapists. I mean, we can't take too much responsibility for what happens in our clients' lives. But if someone's hanging on to us for years and years and feeling like we are their sole so source of support and nobody else understands them and that they don't have the ability to take meaningful action in their lives, then maybe that's an invitation to kind of step back and go, am I helping this person find their power and heal and move on. 
that yes, they need to be heard for ways in which they felt victimized. They might also need to look at the part of them that is sometimes the perpetrator and sometimes the rescuer and help themselves get out of this altogether and have relationships that aren't based on drama. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just therapists that that I see, you know, having the savior complex. It's teachers. Um, and I'm sure you've heard of the term glitter families. So those are families who re- rescue, quote-unquote, um, children from their families who are, quote-unquote, unsupportive. So that's that's a big problem, too. I mean, I see a lot of—I've talked to teachers who talk about all these kids that come to them that have been rejected by their parents. And I'm thinking, how do you know? Are you talking to the parents? Do you have, a like, a window into their home? You're listening to a teenager. You're getting one side of the story, not to mention this is a time in their lives when they are individuating from their parents. And there's there's often strife between children and parents at this age. And you're encouraging that then. If you're, you know, you're buying into, you're not, you're making a judgment, right, on these, on this family without knowing anything about them. Um, and that, that, I've seen that happen a lot too. Yeah. So I, I do. I do believe, and I know I have actually talked to some teachers who are very concerned about policies that are in many school districts across the country that uh, that direct teachers to affirm and to use the new a new name and pronouns without letting parents know. So um, I, there are some teachers who really um, kind of run with that and and I think really buy into that and there are some teachers who are very concerned about it um so I don't I don't want to you know I don't want to paint teachers with a broad brush of of being supportive of this stuff there but there are enough of them that are and enough of school administration that are and I think these people um have good intentions I think most of these people have good intentions but at the same time, they should know better. <laughs> they should know that that keeping secrets from parents is not healthy for a family. Um, that there's there's even more than that. Uh, that having children keep secrets with other adults from their parents is a predatory tactic. It's grooming. It's grooming, exactly. And even if, I mean, I don't believe that's what the schools intend. They're they're trying to, you know, quote unquote, rescue these children. But but it is grooming. And so even if that's not what they're trying to do, um, they are teaching children that, that that sort of behavior is okay. And they're leaving them open for someone who could be very dangerous and, and come in and have... A, at the same time, they're also like doing that triangulation thing, right? Where they're 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 driving a wedge between parents and their children, um, and and kind of teaching them that their parents aren't supportive. There's so many things that are wrong with these policies. I, it's it's so distressing as a parent. This to, idea, the idea that parents are unsupportive, in combination with all of the other ways in which claiming a trans or non-binary identity is aligning oneself with the perceived victim group, we need to step back and look at what motives might someone have for taking this identity on or creating a narrative about how they're being oppressed by their parents. Um, 
I think some people who are kind of naive about what's going on think, well, why would someone say that if it's not true? But we need to look at the social landscape in which this is taking place when there's a lot of vitriol being directed at perceived oppressor or dominant groups, right? So right now it's really unpopular to be, you know, a boring white cishet girl, right? Or to to be white and middle class, you know, the more kind of categories of quote unquote privilege that you have, the more there's a target on your back and you're not entitled to any kind of support. And so if you are a kid who comes from a pretty stable background and you have what's considered privilege, and especially if you're like a a straight white kid at heart, but even a gay white kid at this point, and it's not that it's just white people, but I think, you know, we're looking it, it at is mostly. the perception. Yeah. The perception that someone is privileged in uh, the current climate of what it is to be liberal feels really risky, right? And kids don't feel privileged at heart. They feel anxious. They feel awkward. They feel lonely. They feel human feelings and they don't want to be seen as an oppressor. So of course, if if there's some kind of story they can align with that uh, gives them sympathy and protection from other people, the sense my parents don't understand me, they don't care about me, they're not on my side, they're bigots, they're oppressors, well, at least someone's going to care about me now and I'm going to be protected because I'm seen as a victim, I'm not seen as privileged. So uh, whether parents, teachers, definitely therapists whose job it is to investigate these issues psychologically, we all need to think about maybe it's not true that someone wouldn't say this if it weren't true. Maybe the it's not true that the only incentive for saying you're trans is that you're really trans, whatever that means. What are all the reasons that someone might feel incentivized to tell this particular story? It's not always conscious manipulation. Sometimes it's that need for attention or that need for protection, or like you said, kids who have been bullied, and this is the first time or the only way that they get that sympathy. I think some kids might actually feel quite guilty about the fact that they don't have it that bad, right? And and ironically, a lot of these ki- kids do care about fairness, but I don't think they see how unfair it is that when there are kids in the world who really have abusive and neglectful families, that they're claiming to belong to that group when they don't. It's not fair. But we need to create a social climate in which it's okay to be a white cishet girl or boy or whatever to belong to these so-called oppressor groups as your demographics and not feel like you're going to be discriminated against or targeted for that. Until we create an environment that is truly equal, where no group is discriminated against, where no group can be targeted according to their demographics, then we're always going to be incentivizing people to look for that protection of belonging to some special group. That's right. That's definitely what's happening right now with the social landscape. Um, Yeah, it's not cool to be, like you said, a a straight, uh, cis, whatever. I hate that word. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, white person, a white kid. Um, And actually, uh, speaking of which, when my daughter was going through this, she thought she was being an edgy teen. She was, like, being edgy and cool. So, yeah, this is— It's the new punk— it is. <laughs> or emo but we've or talked goth about or whatever. 
<laughs> some of the conversations that I've been in around this issue, we've talked about what's going to help society reach peak trans. And, and we talked about, well, when it's not cool anymore because it's too mainstream, like this is the this is the pop punk era. And someone was saying, yeah, we're living in the Blink-182 time of trans. Oh, man, it's just crazy. Yeah, I do think uh, as more and more kids get into this, it's it's going to become uncool. I don't know how soon that's going to be. And I don't know how many, I mean, this is the big question, how many children and families are going to be harmed before before our culture wakes up to the harm this is causing. It's really horrible. <laughs> yeah, and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, because the long-term medical right. consequences are so severe that we're going to be faced with new kinds of crises as a result of this. Yes, Since we have we to are. wrap up soon, I'd love to kind of go over some of the key elements of what helped your family. So I want to review what I heard you say, right? So what I heard you say ultimately helped your daughter desist was that, first of all, you stopped seeing the therapist that was affirming. Yes. You demanded your parental right to medical records. You had an individual therapist who was older and wiser and recognized that this was a trend. That therapist helped you through family therapy that addressed the real issues in the family without focusing on gender. You didn't focus on gender head on, but you focused on taking your daughter out of school, taking her off of social media, spending more quality time with her, taking her outdoors, getting her back in her body, back in nature, and having important conversations that are part of growing up about learning about the world and learning about how how the bad guys work, so to speak, and learning about history and, as I was saying, like sociology and these things that that a kid needs to learn about the world without being cynical. Um, you reminded your daughter of how much you love and protect her and what she instinctively knows about who's really on her side. And you let her see your vulnerability in appropriate ways and moments about how this was really affecting you as the person who loves her the most. Um, so those were a few of the key points that I heard you say. Uh, that helped your daughter to desist. Is there anything that you would add to that? Uh, no, I think that that was a pretty good summation. Um, I the other thing that I would say is that this is just not an instant process. You know, like it. And, and one of the things that my therapist said was, you know, it took her this long to get into it. It's going to take her probably about the same amount of time to come out of it. And, you know, I don't know if that's a hundred, if that's universally true. I mean, as kids get older, they're, they're going to, they might be able to mature out of this stuff qu more quickly. I don't know. Um, but, but it was, it was general, generally true for us. It was a slow process. These conversations that we've had, um, you know, it was over a year and a half. Um, so, and which was about the time that it took her to get into it. So it's not, it, it, it's a slow and careful process. It's really, we, as parents, um, we have to really think about it, I think, um, really put a lot of thought into to how we're addressing it. And, and we'll make mistakes, and that's okay because we're human. <laughs> and that's also a good lesson for our children. Or, or you know, I've seen parents who um, started affirming, and they were like, well, can, can we change our minds now? Well, of course you can because— you're a human and you make mistakes. We all do. 
Um, and it's a good lesson, actually, for your children to see that that you do make mistakes and that you can admit to them and that you can change course and, and kind of recover from it. So Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we can all learn from detransitioners. I, I think one of the reasons that I think detransitioners are so brave and that we can all learn from them, even if we're not interested in gender issues, is that when you're invested in a path, you've put time, energy, money, hope, or you've put yourself on the line. In this case, the most severe thing you can do, you've physically permanently altered your body. When you've invested in something, the instinct is to keep going, right? And, and that's what the sunken cost fallacy um, is about. It's about throwing good money after bad. Once you're invested, you really don't want to just cut your losses and say, well, that was all a waste and now I have to go back to where I started minus the thousands of dollars or the thousands of hours or the permanent changes to my body. Like I, I just have to give up, right? So oftentimes we keep going with something long after a part of us has realized that it was a bad idea or that it's not paying off. Um, we stay in relationships years too long because we've gotten our hopes up or we really believe this person was the one. So it takes a long time to look at ever, all the evidence that, that this is not right for us anymore. So it's just so human to keep going with something past that point because we don't want to face the the humbling grief and loss and embarrassment, everything that we face when we go, I made a mistake. So to to detransition, I think, is is one of the the bravest things to do. And we can all learn from that. And I think you're saying that that's part of what you do as a parent is you say, you know what? I affirmed you. Not that you ever affirmed, but you're talking about families that did. I, yeah, I went along with this stuff. And you know what? After looking into it more or really getting into my feelings, I believe that that was the wrong choice and I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'll, I'll say that for myself as a therapist. I was on board with this stuff because it was what I was taught until I did my research and I really looked into it and I changed my mind and we can do that. And that's a sign of health. So I love that you uh, modeled that for your kid and, and in your own ways and that you encourage other families to do the same. I, I want to just make one more point um, that mm -hmm. at, at one of the other things that I want to um, emphasize or encourage with parents is to just to trust themselves more. Tr trust your mm -hmm. gut as a parent Trust that you know your child the best because that's true. A therapist who's just started meeting with them or a teacher or whoever they are, no, nobody knows your child as well as you do. Um, and, and if something doesn't feel right, that feeling you should, you should pay attention to. And, and just trust that you know more as a parent. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess I think that our, generally speaking, as parents, we've lost our confidence in our ability to to parent our children. And so I just, I want to encourage people to, to find that confidence again and trust yourself. Beautiful take-home message. Perfect ending point. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Thank you. where can people find your work and any other resources that you would recommend? Okay. Thanks for asking. So I, um, since this all happened, I became a co-founder of a group called Partners for Ethical Care 
So you can find us at partnersforethicalcare.com. And there are uh, resources there. You can also email us at um, support at partnersforethicalcare.com. If you have any questions or need any support, we will direct you to whatever we know of that we can that we can help you with. And we do have a lot of resources and we know of other um, helpful groups out there. There are many. Okay, so another thing that I'm working on that is helpful for education and and potentially also for legislation that will help against medicalization. I do a podcast called The Witness. So I'm the producer of that. And that is stories of children who and families who have been affected by gender, gender identity. And um, it's mostly parent stories. We have a couple of detransitioner stories as well, but um, we are we welcome stories from anyone. In fact, we would really love to hear from uh, other professionals, therapists, teachers, doctors. Um, they're all anonymous stories. They are uh, recorded and read by a handful of, of volunteers that work with me. Um, so it's completely confidential and anonymous. So any parent, educator, anyone who has a story about this and they don't want to share it publicly, they can share their story with you and you'll have someone else read it on your podcast. Exactly. Um, which I have actually offered for parents to record themselves, but many of them don't want to. Um, it's this whole, ep- this is a very traumatic experience and even just writing their story can be very difficult. So reading it is also, it's just, it's not an easy thing to do. So we, it, it also, you know, that keeps it very anonymous. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that that it worked out for your family and that you've been able to turn your family's personal struggle into a, a resource that can help others. So you have partnersforethicalcare.com. You have The Witness Podcast. I believe people can follow you on Twitter at ethical underscore care. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your story and wisdom and words of encouragement today. I really hope that our audience got a lot out of this. I think this is really enlightening and useful. Um, So it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you again. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.